right, in our final segment, we're just going to plow through a bunch of articles I've got laid out before me in no particular order and no particular subject heading. Starting with this piece in the New York Times about air quality over in China, something I unfortunately got to experience firsthand in November. The fact that my voice has been so trash for the past many programs, I think, is due in part to the air of Shanghai. At least I suspect so, because according to the New York Times, on a scale of 0 to 500, Beijing's air quality tops crazy bad at 755. The piece by Edward Wong notes that one Friday two years ago, an air quality monitoring device atop the U.S. Embassy in Beijing recorded data so horrifying that someone in the embassy called the level of pollution crazy bad in a now infamous Twitter post. That day, the air quality index, which uses standards set by the U.S. EPA, had crept above 500, which was supposed to be the top of the scale. So asks the piece, what phrase is appropriate to describe a jaw-dropping reading of 755 at 8 8 p.m. when all of Beijing looked like an airport smoker's lounge? Though an embassy spokesman said he did not immediately have comparative data, Beijing residents who followed the Twitter feed said that Saturday's number could be the highest recorded since the embassy began monitoring back in 2008. The embassy's Twitter feed just said the level of toxicity in the air was beyond index. That uh, crazy bad label was used just once in November 2010 before it was quickly deleted by the embassy from its Twitter feed. According to the EPA, levels between 301 and 500 are hazardous, meaning people should avoid all outdoor activity. According to the World Health Organization, a score above 500 would be 20 times the level of particulate matter in the air deemed safe. On the other hand, Xinhua, the Chinese state news agency, reported on December 31st that Beijing's air quality had improved for 14 years straight and that the level of major pollutants had decreased. There has been a growing outcry among Chinese for municipal governments to release fuller air quality data in part because of the U.S. Embassy's Twitter feed. Back in 2009, a Chinese foreign ministry official, Wang Shuai, told American diplomats to halt the Twitter feed, saying the data, quote, is not only confusing, but also insulting, unquote. Mr. Wang warned that the embassy's data could lead to, quote, social consequences, unquote. And we can't resist stories about exoplanets in this program, so let's do one more. Apparently, Vega, the fifth brightest star in the sky, has been found to support two belts around it, which by extension indicates it may have a bunch of planets in between them. Scientists using NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope and the European Space Agency's Herschel Space Observatory have taken a look out at Vega and discovered that um, it plays host to a warm inner belt of asteroids and an outer cool belt ten times further out from the star, separated by a large gap, wherein presumably there lies planets. This scheme may sound familiar to you because our own solar system possesses an inner belt of asteroids, and ten times further away, the Kuiper belt, which contains colder and wetter bodies uh, of comets, etc. By wetter, I mean frozen water. It's pretty cold out there. The scientists have failed to locate planets around Vega yet, but they think they might be there. Stay tuned for news in that department. And here's an item from the goofball file, which is also irresistible. 
Apparently, a zoo in North Dakota is set to receive an injection of funds thanks to the sale of colorful artwork painted by one of its own residents, Ty, a 275-pound orangutan. The ape has apparently painted a series of artworks that are on display and for sale at a local community center, with all proceeds going to the zoo's conservation efforts. The primate painter-in-residence has produced, according to descriptions, several vibrant canvases, despite his developing a taste for his non-toxic painting materials. Said the zoo's curator, Tom Schmaltz, he's particularly fond of eating yellow paint. Could be because it looks like a banana. In defense of the orangutan, Mr. McMillan points out that Vincent Van Gogh was noted to have consumed some of his own paints. I did not know that. And we're quite certain that this debate over sugary uh, foods and obesity and obesity in general and its effect on health care is going to heat up in the coming year. Contributing to this uh, spirit of discussion will be the news that perhaps being slightly overweight might reduce your risks of dying prematurely. That's according to a new analysis of nearly 100 studies showing that people who have a body mass index, BMI, that qualifies them as overweight are 6% less likely to die early than people considered to be of normal weight. According to Stephen Heimsfeld, director of the Pennington Biomedical Research in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, carrying a few extra pounds is not as lethal as we've been led to believe. Of course, other researchers point out that the BMI, which takes into account only a person's height and weight, is a very crude measure of health. Athletes in peak condition can pack on a lot of muscle and often have BMIs in the overweight category. But it's also possible that a bit of extra fat stored in the right place might help people survive illnesses. According to Klantar Zadeh, professor at the University of California in Irvine, what is bad is a type of fat that is inside your belly. Non-belly fat underneath your skin and your thighs or your butt area, these are not necessarily bad. Also sounding off on a contrarian view is uh, Lisa Bacon, professor of nutrition at the City College of San Francisco, who is quoted in an article in a science magazine as saying that weight is a baseless measure of health and weight loss a counterproductive goal. Noted the piece, the ironclad notion that obesity leads to disease and early death is wrong. In a 2005 report published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and by the way, I get JAMA on a regular basis. Generally, it goes straight to the garbage pail. But according to JAMA notes the piece, the CDC showed that people classified as overweight live longest, with the moderately obese achieving longevity com comparable to that of people at normal weight. Bacon says the solution is dump the weight focus. Dispense with food rules and calorie restrictions. Tune in to the body's natural hunger signals and relearn which foods are satisfying. Adding, move in ways that feel good. Of course, in the same piece, there's a little sidebar saying, counterpoint, sickening stats on obesity. Experts at the CDC and NIH say obesity leads to a surging risk of disease adding that for many, weight loss may be an important goal. For example, a nurse's study of diabetes done on 114,000 women found that the risk of getting diabetes was 93 times higher in obese subjects. Hmm, no word on whether moving well helps that. The nurse's study also suggests that 25% of ovulatory infertility may be, do, may be due to obesity. 
and that after analyzing 300,000 people, that the obese have an 81% higher risk of coronary artery disease. And I've been sitting on this opinion piece from New Scientist Magazine, November 10th issue for uh, quite some time. I guess in the minutes we have left, this might be a good time to address the piece by Josh Bloom, which I shall quote from. It's very rare for new evidence to question or even negate the utility of a well-established class of drugs. But after four decades as a standard therapy for heart disease and high blood pressure, it looks as though this fate will befall beta blockers. Two major studies published within about a week of each other suggest that the drugs do not work for these conditions. This is a big surprise with big implications. First beta blocker Inderol was launched in 1964. This drug has been hailed as one of the great medical advances of the 20th century. Its inventor, James Black, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 1988. The 20 or so beta blockers now on the market are very widely used. Almost 200 million prescriptions were written for them in the U.S. in 2010. They are standard issue for most people with heart disease or high blood pressure. This may now change. A large study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, perhaps I should have read that one before it headed for the garbage pail, found that beta blockers did not prolong the lives of patients a revelation that must have left many cardiologists shaking their heads. The researchers followed almost 45,000 heart patients over three and a half years and found that beta blockers did not reduce the risks of heart disease, deaths from heart attack, or stroke. Notes this is not definitive, but damning, especially when another study published just days earlier found pretty much the same thing. That was in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society. The goal of the second study was to examine the effects of drug compliance on death rates. That's on patients who'd had a heart attack. About half of the patients complied with their drug regimen. Unsurprisingly, those people were found to be nearly 30% less likely to die than those who did not comply. But there was a surprise. These results held for the standard classes of heart drugs, statins, anticoagulants, and antihypertensives. It did not, however, for beta blockers. Regardless of whether or not patients struck to their regimen, their risks of dying was the same. People are asking how it could be that uh, the previous study showing that beta blockers were effective uh, is perhaps now negated. Well, the authors in JAMA came up with a reasonable explanation that most clinical trials on beta blockers took place before reperfusion therapy became the standard it is today following heart attacks. Reperfusion involves opening the blocked artery by surgery or pharmaceuticals and has been shown to significantly reduce damage to the heart. Damaged hearts are more prone to fatal irregular beats, and beta blockers are useful in controlling this. But with the advent of reperfusion therapy, people who survived heart attacks suffered less cardiac damage, so the frequency of fatal arrhythmias was lower. Putting it simply, the beta blocker effect was significant before the advent of this improved treatment, but the beneficial effect has since disappeared. This is pretty earth-shaking stuff, and we're going to revisit that in the next few months. All right, we've got about two minutes left. I know I quoted from USA Today earlier, a publication I don't read extensively. My PA used to refer to it as McPaper, but it surely does aim at the mainstream of America, so it's, uh, it's worth a look now and again. Their, their article on uh, Armstrong was interesting. Like everyone else, it has quotes like, uh, the people spoke on conditions of anonymity because they were not authorized to discuss Armstrong's strategy publicly. 
It seems like that was in every article about Lance Armstrong. But on a happy note, in the same sports pages they talked about last week's playoff weekend, if you are a football fan, that certainly may have been one of the great weekends in football history, particularly for the San Francisco 49ers, which, uh, as we wished for on this program, uh, the Niner-Packer game went pretty much as we hoped it would on this program, in that uh, Chico's Aaron Rodgers performed very well. But Wisconsin native Colin Kaepernick, quarterback in the Niners, set the all-time NFL record for rushing yards by a quarterback. 181 yards. We'll have to bring our favorite sports correspondent, Sean Minton, on sometimes next, next month to talk about, uh, well, we'll talk about Armstrong, I think, in addition to the 49ers. And whatever else Sean wants to talk about. Final note of the day, just as Lance Armstrong is attempting to rehabilitate himself, so too is the Chevy with the Stingray. The Corvette Stingray evidently marks its uh, 60th anniversary this week, and, um, well, Detroit's rolling out a new, supposedly new and improved version. This correspondent has always thought of the Corvette Stingray as kind of an IQ test on four rubber wheels. And if you bought one, you flunked. And if you bought one with an automatic transmission, you probably should have your driver's license taken away. But of course, that opinion, like all those you ever hear in this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. And that about does it for the program, which is produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Our thanks to Steve Fenton for talking to us about Lance Armstrong and Bicycling Matters. We hope Steve will be back in the future. He knows his business. On next week's program, or the program after that, we're going to talk to an author who's written a book about Nostradamus. I predict that'll be intriguing. We'll see you then. Jockeys that were living for me Believe it or not I started to worry